the Anesthesia Podcast. Welcome everyone to this special NAP7 author discussion. My name is Marianne Turner and I'm an editor of Anesthesia. I'm delighted to be joined by the authors of a paper related to the NAP7 study on the topic of potentially serious complications during anesthesia. Welcome to Andrew Kane, Jazz Saw and Tim Cook. So let's just launch straight in. Um, Andrew, can you tell our listeners about the main outcomes that were described in this paper? Yeah, thank you. So um, in this in this study, we were looking at a subset of what we call the activity survey data within NAP7. So NAP7, as, as you know, has in, been investigating perioperative cardiac arrest, and we've had different ways of trying to assess that. So one part of it is the case registry. So that gives us the one in um, X, as it were, across nationally. And the, the X, if you like, the denominator data we get from the activity survey, where we formed a bit like a census of all departments up and down the UK over four days, um, getting patient level details about, um, you know, case level details about patients, their characteristics, some surgical details. But we also asked specifically about complications that happened during anesthesia because we thought this would be important to contextualize the overall case registry. So we we discussed the complications that we were going to ask about in great length amongst the panel and we decided that they had to be serious enough um, such that if um, they weren't managed appropriately or the patient was sick enough they may degenerate to say a cardiac arrest or death. So we're not talking about complications like nausea or vomiting or missing a cannula, they're potentially serious things like um, airway ones like a failed intubation or breathing issues that might be severe hypoxia, for example, circulatory ones that included major hemorrhage, septic shock, for example, so things that were potentially very serious. And in the 20,000 or so cases that we got back um, across the UK, we found that to our surprise, I think really that roughly about one in 18, just over 5% of the cases reported at least one or more of these complications. And interestingly, cardiovascular complications were the most frequent of the group. They represented about a third of all the complications that were reported. Then airway, about 25% a quarter. Then breathing and metabolic things together, about 15% each. And then neurological and other things um, filled up the rest. Now, I think what's important to say is although a lot of anaesthetic procedures had a complication, each individual complication wasn't that common. Um, and so what we tried to do was um, contextualize each complication by referring to it in a sort of everyday language um, type descriptor. So for example, a common event might be one in 10 or more. Uh, an uncommon event was um, so sorry, very common was one in 10 or more, uncommon was one in 100, uncommon one in 1,000, so on and so forth. Um, and, and what was actually reassuring was that when we looked at elective patients, everything was uncommon or less frequent, which was good. Um, when you look at emergency patients, we found that there were quite a, um, a small number of cases, 16% of cases, but they massively overrepresented the number of complications by over twofold for the number of patients that were there. So I think they're the key things, really. Well, one of the interesting parts of the methodology, um, you say that in your discussion that you didn't provide strict definitions of the criteria for each complication, leaving that at the discretion of the reporting anaesthetist. I wonder, perhaps, Jazz, if you could elaborate a little bit more on this and talk us through um, whether that 
you know, changes the relevance of your findings or what impact that might have? I mean, firstly, um, NAP7, we had to be pragmatic about this. We wanted all 15,000 anaesthetists in the UK to record every case they did over a four-day period. And for NAP6, this was done by individual anaesthetists filling out bits of paper that the local coordinator then scanned, or actually they were all sent to the college. And someone at the college scanned 16,000 or 20,000 bits wow. of paper and they hand, had to look at them where people hadn't ticked the box. And this was just done just after COVID. So we did it electronically, we did an app and it had to be easy to fill in in real time and it had to be simple. And the important thing is, is that a lot, a lot of the complications we listed are sort of slam dunk like new AF, yeah. ring a spasm, you call for help. And even the ones that are slightly more difficult, like severe hypotension, we did say the need to start central vasopressors or considering starting them. So that's quite, quite, you know, so it's quite a sort of yes, no. And we then relied on the anaesthetists to decide whether they're going to report it or not. Mm. We didn't, for example, set a saturation value or pulse oximetry value for severe hypoxemia, but we did say severe and and people then had to say yes or no. So I think I think there was enough information for picking up important signals. And when we when we've sense checked it, it's about right. So the incidence of say the I was just looking at this uh, the need for pulmonary aspiration say in the Aerocomp study it was about 0.13 percent no it's 0.1 percent in our data it's 0.13 percent so we're getting into the right ballpark and if you look at things like severe hypotension it's much commoner in emergency surgery and much lower so I think we're getting good estimates that are giving good ballpark figures and I'm going to go back to yeah, clearly the headline is one in 18, but when you read beyond the headlines, there's quite a lot of nuance to it and where these individual complications occur. And I think when people read the paper, they'll have to get down to like looking at very specific things like airway issues, breathing issues, circulation issues. So one of the things I've that I picked up when I was looking at this is that one in 500 anaesthetics anaesthetists asked for a second anaesthetist to come and assist them. You know, which on a career level, that may be once or twice a year at most for most anaesthetists in a department, it may be a lot more, but it's, it's commoner than I thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's quite a lot of things like that, which we've picked up, which we can now put estimates or ballpark values to. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that, actually. Perhaps, Tim, you could give us some insights. Were there any surprise, any findings that were quite surprising to the team or that you were uh, not expecting? Um, surprising, unexpected. I think we went in with a fairly open mind. I mean, I think, for instance, the fact that um, 
forty percent of the events are uh, cardiovascular, and a third and twenty five percent, so more, more than a third are cardiovascular, and a quarter are airway. I mean, I think not everybody would necessarily have estimated that before. Um, that will vary. Um, so th it's a reasonably big survey. It's not hundreds of thousands. You know, it's it's depending on how you slice it up, it's around 24, 20 to 25,000 cases. Um, and within each subset, so if you just look at ENT, airway will be probably be higher than cardiovascular. If you just look at neonates, um, if you just look at the obese, probably airway will be higher than cardiovascular, probably. Um, but it, it, it's a big enough survey to um, to divide it up into various um, different tranches, as it were, and um, and look at individual areas. So I think, I, I, to me, I went in it with an open mind, and I think all the results are surprising. Perhaps it's because after thirty five years giving anaesthetics, I don't know anything. Um, <laughs> but um, I think one of the great strengths of the activity survey is that uh, Andrew will talk in more detail about other things we may do with it in the future but it does allow us to look at different areas so I think the strength of the activity survey will come out particularly when the whole project is published because within each chapter whether it's airway or it's whether pediatrics or anaphylaxis um, that we are able to look at the rates of complications. We have to use as a denominator for that particular area, but we're able to look at uh, the rates of complications specific to either to that patient group or to that um, area of practice and, and see how that also relates to the third stage of the project, the registry phase. And there are lots of, and th there's a huge number of areas where there's a correlate between, for instance, um, airway complications in patients with obesity and cardiac arrest due to airway and respiratory causes in patients with obesity and in paediatrics higher rates of complications as the child gets smaller and smaller with both cardiovascular and respiratory complications becoming higher and that also applies to causes of cardiac arrest and so there is a lot of consistency across the project and I think the other thing that's really interesting and useful about it is that it's which we'll probably talk about a little bit later is that it's big enough to pick up on some fairly infrequent events 25,000 cases is is perhaps a reasonably large hospital pretty probably bigger than most DGHs their annual activity it's everything that happened in 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 a in a large DGH or a small teaching hospital for a year or in this case it's um one in 90 of all UK cases and so we're able to pick up on some unusual events um, and to realise that unusual events do happen and can be measured and captured. And, and again, that will relate to the registry. We'll probably touch on that a bit later. Now, you're talking about unusual events, and I did um, notice that um, no cases of local anaesthetic toxicity were found. Um, did you have any comments on that, Andrew or Jazz? Yeah, I think I think there were some surprises in what was infrequent as well as what was frequent. And I mean, there were no cases of LA toxicity reported. Um, uh, indeed, we 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 could talk about how we um, maybe filtered some of the data, but we didn't find any convincing cases of malignant hypothermia either in that data set. Um, or even um, I think high neuraxial block in the general set. There were cases in the obstetric patients which we excluded. Um, so yeah, so some of those things that you thought may occur didn't, mm. and I, 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 
part of me hopes that um, maybe they don't work over that frequently, but maybe that's actually a success of various safety initiatives that have happened in anesthesia over the last 10, 15 years. You know, particularly as a new starter in anesthesia in the UK, local anesthetic toxicity has drummed into you and calculating doses and MH. It, it, maybe these are actually signs of success. Um, rather than rather than we didn't find them per se. Can I just come on, I think it's, it's also worth, um, we probably need J.D. Pandit on the podcast to explain it in full detail, but, um, you know, the absence of an event um, in a particular cohort doesn't mean, so if we've not seen an event in 25,000 cases, doesn't mean that the instance is less than one in 25,000. There are two fabulous papers, one called If Nothing Goes Wrong, Is Everything All Right? And the other one is If Almost Nothing Goes Wrong, Is Everything Probably All Right? Or something like that. They're great papers. And they talk about dealing with small numerators. And so an event, if an event is not found in a cohort of N, um, uh, of N then your 95% confidence interval for that not happening is, I think, is, is, is three over N, isn't it? So, so if we've not found anything in 24,000 cases, then we're, we're looking at an event that's probably got an instance of less than about one in 8,000. Um, but of course, there's a 5% chance that it's more frequent than that, and we've still, not, and we've still missed it. But, but um, yeah, we've only looked at 25,000 cases or 20,000 if we exclude obstetrics. Um, and so the, the most rare events we won't have seen. And, and again, we pick up on some of those more rare events as causes of cardiac arrest in the registry, which which looks at the outcome of all basically three million cases that happen in, in, in the year that we studied. And I, I do think one of the reassuring things was that a few of the never events, you know, that were, um, you know, that have been flagged in the UK previously, you found that there were no incidences of those events, which was... I guess somewhat reassuring um, to know. What was that, Tim? I said none reported. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now we were talking a little bit earlier. I think Tim, you touched on um, on on the babies, and um, one of the other interesting factors that came out of the paper, I thought, was that young age was associated with higher rates of complications more so than advancing age. Um, would someone like to let us know why you think that might have been? Yeah, I, I'm happy to. Start with that, unless you want to dive in, Andrew. No, no, go, go ahead. So, um, yeah, so so amongst our univariate analysis, and we we'll, might talk again about that later, um, age uh, variation in age was um, was a significant factor with um, older patients uh, and extremely older patients um, having something of a signal, not a really strong signal, but something of a signal for increased risk of complications, probably complicated by frailty and comorbidity. Um, but also um, decreasing age. So um, particularly, so children low rate of uh, incidence, so children above the age of five low incidence or about the same as adults. But once you go into the under ones, um, infants, um, a 10%, so we've got a 4% risk of complications in the over fives. And I think, uh, uh, so, uh, so, so yeah, so, um, yeah, so, but, but slightly lower than, than the 6% in adults. Um, but if you go down to the infants, it's 10%, um, and go down to the neonates, it's 17 So neonates are very rarely anesthetized other than by anybody who are extremely specialised, and yet roughly one in, or more than one in six, close to one in five of those patients are having a potentially serious complication, and we all know how that can spiral. So this is scary stuff. It's got, and, it, and it's 
not only tells us what we know, but it actually puts some numbers on things. And these relative, these, the relative risk is 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 relevant. It's you know some of the complications were tenfold higher in neonates than they were in children, um, and the absolute rate of the complications is, as I say, quite scarily high, one in six. Um, and again. Um, there's more of a narrative, more of a story to tell when we get to the stage of talking about the cardiac arrests and the registry and the learning from individual cases and the thematic analysis. But I think, again, it, it all knits together. So the messages that come through in the complications paper are echoed in the other phases of the of the, of the registry. It all, it all hangs together. We talked in a previous um, uh, podcast so what, um, roughly one in seven anaesthetists considered paediatrics to be one of their subspecialties. This was from the baseline survey. But when emergencies occur, um, often anaesthetists who don't have paediatric sessions will be involved. And in terms of preparation for um, both in training of anaesthetists, provision of emergency equipment, particularly airway equipment, and particularly in remote sites, um, it's paediatrics, paediatric anesthesia, where there's the, the bigger gap in provision. So it all hangs together. And much as the naps are very soft in terms of evidence and very kind of fluffy around the edges, actually, it comes together and, and tells a narrative. I think there's, you know, with the neonates, there's, there's, there's a bit more of a narrative in that, um, you know, if you look back at the, the previous publication, the patient characteristics one that came out earlier in the year, the neonates, they they tend to be sicker, so there's not many ASA one neonates to theatre <laughs> for elective <laughs> surgery. So that they're, they're mostly coming because they are you know premature or sick, and they're mostly coming for emergency surgery, which is you know relatively urgent. So I I I, I think that it's a combination of things, and, and and one of the one of the things that we want to go on and do, recognizing that with a univariate analysis, it doesn't tell all the story is to work with um, data science specialists to really understand what the actual risks are you know is you know for that neonate are they at risk because they are a neonate or is it because they're coming for emergency surgery and we'll be able to tease some of those things out and that might be relatively novel because when we look at risk scoring say perioperatively we often talk about 30-day complication rates or 90-day or one-year complication rates but we very rarely think about what are the chances of something going on during this case so you might extrapolate that so you might think oh because your NELA mortality or morbidity score is high therefore the case itself might be complex or high risk but that's actually not what you're measuring and there's a potential with this data set to go on to measure that and have some kind of risk calculator that gives you a ballpark figure for an individual case. Yeah, I was going to say a little bit more about the univariate analysis. So what it does show is uh, complications occur at extremes of age, frailty, higher ASA classes, common in males, having emergency surgery, especially on a Sunday or overnight. And I think there's quite a lot of overlap in those. You know, that's what, yeah, so... So we haven't done a multivariate analysis, but uh, it tends to be that mainly emergency surgery tends to be done on some days. And so if you're, if you're sort of 
a near mate male having emergency surgery on a Sunday night at it's the perfect storm you actually led me straight to uh the next question which was i was going to ask you jazz whether you would want an operation on a weekend night <laughs> but i think, well, I think <laughs> if i had the the right team and really actually needed the operation i i would uh i would have it and we're, we're talking about um, sort of a, this whole study was conducted over a four day uh, period. Um, and one of the things that I think you comment on in your paper um, is about the numbers for anaphylaxis. So um, you found uh, 4.3 per 10,000 cases, which was much higher than what was previously found in, in NAP6 of one in 10,000. Um, can you explain why this might be the case and whether you think that the this like sort of short period of time, maybe there were other things that weren't collected or other outcomes? Yeah, I'll, I'll take this one, Marianne. Um, yeah, so I think with the best will in the world, when people are filling in a, a, um, a performer at the time of anesthesia, um, then at the very best, all we can say is that they are reporting suspected anaphylaxis. Um, uh, NAP6 was a very different project from NAP7. Its entry criteria were um, anaphylaxis which had been proven to be uh, or had been confirmed um, by uh, allergist or immunologist um, assessment um, almost always not entirely but almost always supported by um, mast cell tryptase um, and um, allergy testing and that's not the case for the cases reported as complications here nor for the cases reported to NAP7 as, as suspected anaphylaxis causing cardiac arrest. So there is a good element of comparing apples with tables or something. Yeah. Um, um, but, and, and there's also an element again, I'm banging on about it, but you have to look at the whole project. Um, if you include the registry and the, and the clinical review by um, the panel, um, who adds a number of experts, um, in anaphylaxis, or certainly people with significant experience of reviewing cases of anaphylaxis, um, then quite a few cases of the registry which were reported as anaphylaxis were, as it were, rejected as anaphylaxis and deemed to be of non-anaphylactic causes. Causes, and I think there is probably read it in the report, but I think there is there is an element that sometimes anaphylaxis is sort of the get out of jail free free complication. For anaesthetists, we see um, profound hypotension in a patient who we think we've given the right dose of drugs to. They have profound um, hypotension or even um, requiring vasopressors or even a cardiac arrest. And to us, that is anaphylaxis. But it may be undiagnosed, severe aortic stenosis. It may be um, a misjudgment on our part. It may be um, left main stem um you know critical stenosis or something like that it may be other events uh, which require unpicking particularly in this in the complications report there's likely to be an overemphasis but also i think we conclude in the overall report that there's probably an over an, an over tendency for anesthetists to report anaphylaxis as a cause um when sometimes there are other causes which may be patient related they may be pathology related and they may be anaesthetist related or anaesthetic conduct related. 
And I wondered um, about that um, with regards to the findings um, uh, with uh, in relation to hypotension in emergency patients. You know, sort of is is the rate of hypotension because the patients were so unwell, or is it something that we need to be looking at in the management of hypotension? You know, hypotension from an anaesthetic perspective. Yeah, I think it's uh, both really. In that, uh, if you've got someone who starts off hypotensive or is prone to hypotension due to their underlying condition, whether it's sepsis or major hemorrhage, and you've got to anaesthetize them. And it's something we have a chapter on major hemorrhage in the main report, and we and we do have a chapter on drugs and dosing. And, and when we've looked at cases of severe hypotension that have progressed to cardiac arrest and so on, there is there is there are big knowledge gaps on how best to manage those patients yeah i could tell you what not to do like don't anesthetize them in the anesthetic room make sure you measure their blood pressure frequently and don't give them too much induction agent but we still don't know what the best way of doing it is. And I guess that ties in with the idea of um, something else that I wanted to talk to you all about, which was um, the concept of consent um, and how useful this data is going to be um, in the provision, for, you know, of of the consent process. Um, it's part of the discussion. They talk, you know, you talk about the um, that it will refine the processes of shared decision making and consent. So I'm just interested in, you know, given that we don't not really know the practical effect or outcome of a short period of intraoperative hypotension, what do you tell your patients with regards to this before, um, you know, before you're taking them to theatre? And does it change in an elective or an emergency context? One one thing we really did try to pull out and in, in some of the tables of the is to emphasize the difference between the elective population and the emergency population. And I, I think with the elective population, as I said at the beginning, every individual complication was reported as either uncommon or less frequent. And I, I, I think that for your, you know, there might be some elective instances where it's not the case, but, you know, for a standard case on a standard day and as an average patient, I, I think that's reassuring that elective, uh, you know, anesthesia for elective surgery is relatively safe, and, and that's a great success of anesthesia over the years. But I think on the, uh, you know, on, on the emergency side, I, I think it's, I, 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 I often do tell patients that there's a risk, you know, that they might get a central line, they might end up in ITU. And I think people, I think we do do that anyway. But I think this data serves to remind us as anesthetists that complications do happen, and during emergency surgery, they happen even more. So be prepared and make sure that you you know cross much blood if you might need it or you know have an ultrasound machine if the cannula is going to be tricky and 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 i think and I, and I think that's where it might be useful as well i think one of the other things is so you know consent and shared decision making are, are different things information provision is a third different thing um the royal college of has a very good um uh, summary uh, document one page um summary document of of the frequency of complications, be they common, uncommon, rare, very rare. And using the data that we've got from this project, we can probably refine some of the data that we provide to patients. So for instance, we can add into the uncommon, that's between one in 100 and one in 1,000. We can add severe hypoxemia, we can add severe hypotension, failed airway management, laryngospasm. 
and to uh, rare we can add cardiac ischemia, cardiac arrest, that's one up to one in 10,000 equipment failure and drug error. Um, now, um, it may be that we don't absolutely know the consequences of those, um, but um, I think we'd all agree, and most patients would probably be able to work out that severely low oxygen levels, however long they last, are probably not a good thing. Failed airway management's not a good thing. Severe hypotension's not a good thing. And if you start out as somebody who's ASA three or four, then one can readily compute that that the the risk is increasing. So it gives some, it adds to the knowledge that informs the information we can give patients. And I think starting by giving patients information, preferably upfront, is both advocated by the college, the association, GMC, et cetera, et cetera. But also it is the right thing to do for patients so we can have those informed discussions at an appropriate time about risk um, and compare that with benefit and decide or help them decide um, what, what they should do and, and move forward with the process of consent. Thanks, Tim. I would really echo that. Um, encourage everyone to take a look at the paper. Um, it's free to access forever. Um, also, uh, please check out all of our other related um, NAP7 papers and podcasts um, that will be coming your way very shortly. And I'd just like to say thank you so much, Andrew, Jasmine, and Tim, for your time today. It's been um, a real privilege to chat um, about your paper and so much hard work that's gone into it. So thank you all. Thanks, Maria. The Anesthesia Podcast.